system. I find you in the shoes and moving a great and being enough. The sign system is everywhere you go. Nineties. 90s NBA 90, on NBC. Yeah, yeah. I've done that one. I've done that one before. I thought so. I mean, it's solid. They still use that, right? Do they still use that? <laughs> they do not use that. They don't. There's no NBA on NBC there anymore. Oh, but well, I mean, yeah. But we're age. We're aging ourselves based on the uh, streams of entertainment that we are uh, or we have consumed. But welcome back to the Design System Office Hours podcast. How are you, PJ? I'm peachy keen. How are you? Doing good. Uh, this uh, this will be a fun one. I think in preparation for talking about what we're going to be talking about, I told PJ to look at what I put as our interim title of the episode, which is a staff presentation designers, which is probably not what you think that may mean, but there's a, there's a Twitter thread or maybe it was a LinkedIn thread that I was, I was a part of, which um, uh, someone prominent in the product design community had talked about completely deviating from hard skills, from the the hard skills of forgetting about being proficient or being an expert in Figma and focus on your storytelling and focus on building, building stories, building decks and, and that sort of thing. And that, that sort of led me to, to think about designers that really do a lot of their, their work in design systems or product design via uh, presentations and um, deviating from the technical side of things. And uh, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that PJ, because I have been seeing it um, especially uh, at my scale now uh, on design teams like ours designers focusing a lot more on the fuzziness of product design and, and concepts and frameworks and all of those buzzwords that, uh, you know, you seem to, uh, hear a lot in, in design. And have you noticed, uh, any, anything like that, um, where, where you are PJ? I've noticed it a lot in a lot of places and, you know, not to get into people's heads. I, I feeling that, that is, you've made it, if you will, like you've, you've, you've made it to the promised land when you're, when you're, at that echelon of, of, of quote design work. But I have my, I have some misgivings around that, which we will, I'm assuming we will get into. Yeah, there's, I think this very, very appropriately, I I think there's uh, extremes, right? There's designers that may um, maybe uh, coming out of boot camps or maybe um, coming uh, out of school that are extremely proficient in design tooling, but maybe, maybe that's it. Uh, Maybe they're extremely uh, proficient in creating components in Figma, uh, but may not have uh, the foresight of uh, specific engineering constraints, which um, I think they would be building, um, in, in their first, first, first roles. Um, then there's designers that, uh, solely just work in Google slides or Figma prototypes and, um, are lacking technical knowledge and, and lacking an understanding of, um, engineering constraints. Uh, I would say we would want to hit somewhere in the middle. I don't disagree that 
we need to be able to tell tell our story and be able to paint the picture. But uh, I'm seeing that there's uh, designers that are further and further along in their career that are um, uh, not able to demonstrate a, an idea in, in a visual form, whether that's a, a wireframe or just a, a, a screen design. The ground level and the, and the, and the skyscraper level are both really important. And, um, so, you know, example is I, in another life worked at a, uh, consultancy where a lot of the output was, uh, were presentations, were decks, strategic decks. I'm not making this up. I, I had, uh, I had had conversations with clients post engagement where, you know, the, the feedback was, I mean, it was great, but like, what the, what the hell do we do with this? Like, what do we do next? Right. And so what I've, what I've noticed, if you're in the weeds, you know, a lot of the gap is like, but like, but why? Okay. It's great that you did this thing, but why did you do it? And then at, if you're at the 50,000 foot level, it's around a like, okay, but how <laughs> you have all these great ideas, but how the hell do we actually make it happen? And so I think as hard as it may be, and you know, I think a lot of folks work together at different levels that can be how it works but at some way you need to you need to to be traversing both you know the full spectrum of of echelons so that you're answering the hows and the whys throughout the entire process what i've typically seen is that a lot of times that process goes too far down the path before it got checks and then and then it's like well this there's no reason to do this to begin with or or it's completely impossible to do this for X, Y, Z reasons. And that's, that's been my general criticism of this approach. If you're just on one level of the stratosphere at all times, you're probably missing a key part of how something actually ships, which I think, uh, and ships successfully, which I think is, you know, that's why we're in the business. So I think it's pretty important. Yeah, this sort of uh, touches on just uh, every design system maintainer's worst nightmare, which is just like an annual refresh or annual uh, redesign of what whatever you whatever you're doing. And even uh, if we go back to say these these stakeholder presentations, and we have maybe just a like a schema, like a diagram of these are the sort of things that we're going to be modifying. Uh, these are the APIs that we may be hitting this is what we need to accomplish this. I think that would speak uh, a lot about uh, the type of design thinking that is going in there. But just going back to working at Disney and we were a company once called BAMTech Media. And before that, BAMTech Media had acquired Vertigo, which was an agency. Um, I I saw a lot of this uh, in stakeholder presentations and these uh, agency decks that you you mentioned and very key screen heavy, I would say. Um, I don't know if that's the right right term. Very motion driven, uh, but not, not a lot of clarity in terms of leveraging what is already existing or any sort of, uh, code reuse or design reuse, uh, or any sort of, um, manner of building templates to try to replicate whatever you're doing here to other portions of the product. The technical portion of this is very interesting because I, you know, coming out of, this performance review period and coming into the beginning of the year, we write goals. And every year I consider, should I learn a little more about front end development? Uh, should I learn a little more about 
CSS, get a, get a refresher, or should I learn a little bit about Swift or React? And by no means am I interested in going and creating components or apps from scratch, but I would like to be able to understand uh, constraints, understand how props work in, in our apps and how composition works and how uh, dependencies work and how subcomponents work. Um, but I, I think that might be something that is a little more um, nuanced and maybe just based on my interest in design systems in, in general. I'm not looking to be a uh, product design unicorn. You know, I remember way, way back in the day when I was still in school and I talked with industrial designers and they, part of their education was understanding the manufacturing process, how materials work, how something actually gets built. So they're designing something so it actually can go through a production line. I, to this day, don't, I'm biased because I come from a, a technologist background, but to this day, I don't understand how I could do my job without understanding how the thing gets fricking built. It, you know, you're, you're taking a huge leap of faith that what you're making is actually feasible. And, and so I, it behooves us to understand that because you can have the, 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 the prettiest idea in the world, but if it can't happen, that's not the goal. We've said this a lot. Your goal as a designer is not to make pretty Figma files. It's to ship experiences that help the product. And so a lot of that is understanding the compromises that you're going to have, you're just going to have to make due to technical limitations that still gets you your idea, but does it in a way that's actually feasible. So I just, I thought we'd be a lot further along in the industry where we'd have more of a, that industrial design mindset where you understand how something is built. And I'm talking about, like, I know a ton about industrial design. I'll, I don't, but I do. But when I talk to you with industrial designers, that's my understanding. I do think if you're making something, you should understand the medium in which it's made. Painters understand how the medium works, right? Uh, and so I, I think the same ideally should happen. Uh, I don't know how I'd be able to do my job without having at least an inkling of an understanding of how a design decision has some level of impact on the implementation. Yeah, we've talked about this this specific piece as well. And it's not that I would expect you, specifically PJ, a product owner, to go in and create components. But I would expect you to maybe open open a file, go into your library, and provide some meaningful feedback if called upon. Or if you saw something that may have, you know, raised your brow, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of what I'm asking is level of effort. When I'm writing requirements, I am trying to take those things into consideration and, and not coming up with the technical implementation, but trying to create some sort of like, you know, from a, from an experiential standpoint, these things aren't as critical. We can, we can, if this becomes a hindrance from a, from an effort standpoint, cut this, I can flag things of like, oh, my spidey senses are tingling. This might be challenging to build. Uh, we should talk with someone about it before we proceed. And so that's what I'm trying to do is just is is not make those decisions, but catch things. Uh, we just had a, a, a discussion about third party libraries and how we evaluate them and, and um, how we ensure what we take in that's external is going to is going to work. 
And can I evaluate a third-party library? Absolutely not. But I would say it's, I would argue it's in my responsibility space to be aware of how those libraries could potentially impact the system and then, and then make a, a business decision based off of that. And that I would argue requires some modicum of a technical understanding around those, those sorts of things. Yeah. You're also in an interesting position where like when we had worked together uh, on an old system called WAM, uh, I didn't work with you on it, but I was, uh, you know, sitting next to you when you were, you were working on it, you were doing both the design and engineering of, of the thing. So you had both sides of this. That is why I am, and we haven't talked about this in the podcast too much, but that's why I'm so dogmatic about complexity because I've seen it. I've, I did it to myself, whereas adding all these variants and all these things, and then it just, it became exponential in terms of the, in terms of the complexity. And, and I was the one that felt the pain. So it's very easy for myself to put myself in the shoes of an engineer give, who's been given all these, these different variations, these different versions that they have to add into the system and how that can exponentially increase the overhead uh, and the opportunities for things to break. So as someone who created my own pain and understood how those things take off fast, like wildfire, I'm hypersensitive to how much we take on, especially given that oftentimes you don't need it. They're nice, but they ain't, uh, they ain't necessary. Yeah. It might be speaking more of doing things in a more granular, uh, smaller subcomponent fashion. So one thing that we've learned quite a bit about on working on Disney plus is uh, there was an interest, um, from a, let's say branding point of view to have different types of product detail pages, which look vastly different from each other, uh, from a technical point of view, maybe it's not the best idea. Maybe we should be reusing the same template, but we can modify the subcomponents based on whether it's a movie, a short, a trailer and modifying the the smaller pieces allows you all different types of possibilities in terms of ordering of items. You're not re uh, recreating the wheel, so to speak, but you're adding uh, differences in the design where it's uh, meaningful. Yeah. And I, you know, a lot of this comes down to how, how the systems are architected and I'm, I'm going to be talking over my pay grade here. Um, but one thing that I learned when I was building components for Wham, uh, and it's validating because we've come to the same conclusion. Uh, I didn't come to the conclusion. Engineering believed the same thing that if you have a shallow a shallow hierarchy where you have a bunch uh, a, a broader set of smaller purpose built components, those are much easier to keep track of than a big monolith component that does a ton of different things and has major, uh, functional differences per variation. So, um, so a lot of this comes down to just how you architect it as well. So you may not have like a product page component, uh, but what you can have is a bunch of small purpose-built components that you can swap in and out to create something very different without taking on the, the heft uh, as much heft of of tech debt and complexity of just one monolith component. So the problem is that what we've heard from designers is they don't want that. They want like one, 
Like an example is one messaging component and it has all the different variants for, you know, like it's a toast, it's a, it's a call out, it's a, this, it's a, that. And, and I, and the tough thing is like, I hear you, but like from an engineering standpoint, that exponentially increases the complexity. And that goes back to like the storytelling versus the, like the how and the why, like it's very important to understand those technical details because ultimately a bunch of technical details that would feed in to that beautiful story that you want to weave uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. It's also much more uh, sexy to say, I built this messaging component that has a hundred variants, but this messaging component that has a hundred variants, how easy is it for your end consumer, the designer to utilize? How easy is it for you as a maintainer to maintain like this? Uh, this seems like just something uh, we we've seen this at, at Meta quite a bit. I had an input component that right now has 200 variants I'm, and I'm not gloating because like I'm proud of this thing having 200 variants. I think it was made this way um, for a specific point in time when we wanted to showcase all the different variations of this. And uh, previously in the past, I used to shit on things like sticker sheets because I hated that terminology. Um, now looking at something like the Atlassian design system and their playground and how they utilize sticker sheets, I'm using quotations, is more of an example of how you could use and compile subcomponents. And when I think of it in, in that fashion, I'm like, oh, okay, designers can still achieve this uh, uh, grab and go metaphor and be able to grab, oh, I need this, this specific error toast. I need a specific warning toast. Um, I need an input box with two dialogues on it. Um, they could still find that in, in the, in the sticker sheet in our, in our playground, but it could just be deriving from a component with maybe five variants versus 200. Yeah. And we're, we're, you know, we're kind of deviating in terms of, um, in terms of the, the topic, but that is always the challenge, at least from my perspective is that the decisions we're making are a compromise to lead to the best net outcome. So while it might be a beautiful story that you just have a single component that can do all these different things from an engineering perspective, that is going to be incredibly difficult to, um, to implement on our side. It's going to take a ton of documentation to explain how to configure that friggin' thing to do what you want it to do. So the API is going to be a lot more complex uh, for the, the end engineering user. Um, and that's going to lead to a poor net experience. And so, and so that's, that's, it goes back to if, if the purpose of what you're doing is to weave a beautiful story, I'd argue that's not your job. Your job isn't to weave a story. Your job is to support outcomes. And it may not be as, as elegant of a, of a talking point, but if it's going to help people get the job done more effectively and in a way to where the team can sustainably support it, you know, it may not be as sexy of a, of a talking point, but I think it's, it's, it's the job. And that's the problem is if you get too caught up in, in, in the talking point and the flash and the fancy and down, and deviate away from just the the basics and the fundamentals of what you're trying to do uh, that can get you into some trouble. Yeah. I remember, I think uh, when the 
Disney design system team was, was new. Yeah. I was living in Google slides as well, but it was much more of a, um, instead of a selling of different design concepts, it was really a roadshow, uh, of the first year and really trying to sell that. These are the things that we were able to do. These are the things that we're able to accomplish with the system. We could build, uh, essentially if you build, two themes, you could build a hundred themes. And it's really about trying to set yourself up uh, early on to be able to do this sort of work. Um, But we joke that sometimes it feels like our work is in Google Slides. Sometimes it feels like we're a professional Google Sheet or Excel uh, pro. Maybe we're a Jira or an Asana pro. Um, But yeah, the presentation design and really solely trying to um, use that as your prime artifact, I think is as a senior staff or whatever, whatever you call um, designer, I think is a, a little short, short-sighted. It's just, I understand why it, I understand why it happens and you're trying to convince people you're trying to, to rally. I get it. I just rather do the work. <laughs> I just rather, I just rather execute then discuss how maybe we could possibly execute because it just, it can be a rat hole. It can just, it can be a, like a, like a black hole even where you just can't escape that, that, that vortex of talking about the work as opposed to doing the work. And so that's one thing I'm really like, I'm, I'm a stickler about is really the, the, the work is what's important um, at the end of the day. And, and if you're not, ship and good work at, it doesn't matter how you can talk about it or how shiny of a story you can wrap around it. It really comes down to the work that you're doing and, and, and the outcomes from it. Yeah. Let's flip, let's flip this on its head and talk about, uh, instead of focusing on Google, uh, Google slides or Figma, Figma presentations, it seems like with someone like a strong design technologist, you could, do this because you could really instantly utilize the system and showcase potential outcomes. And I think that's where the rubber meets the road. I, I I say this so many times, but I don't understand why this industry doesn't have more design technologists. I just, I know it's tough. Don't get me wrong. It's the fire hose of information, but just what you can accomplish of decisions that you can make it's just so much more effective. I remember way, way, way back in the day when I was just, I was just a front end engineer, you know, so many times in an agency, a designer would come up with something, spend like two weeks on it. And we'd say like, that is, it's literally impossible. We'll go back to the drawing board. I mean, it's just, it's just heat loss, you know? And yes, that can be, that can be solved with better collaboration. That is clearly a poor, <laughs> that's an example of poor collaboration. We are sharing way too late. However, thing about a design technologist is those decisions are made instantaneously. There's no, there's no loop there. There's no, there's no, it just happens. Um, and, and, and I still to this day do not understand, um, why there aren't more people being trained in this area. Why, um, why corporations aren't throwing money. I think some of it has to do with orgs. You know, you got to, uh, you got, design leadership that doesn't understand engineering. Like we don't know what the hell to do with design technologists. You got engineers, you know, leadership with filled with engineers. We don't know how to do with designers. 
Uh, and it's just, it's just a people problem. It's just a, you know, like an, like this is how we've done the work. People have climbed up the ladder. They've stuck in there. They stayed in their little like silos and then design technologists can oftentimes have a real hard time in like, where do I exist in an org? How do I level up? Can I ever really be in design leadership or engineering leadership? Because I'm not really one of them. Um, so it's, it's challenging because I, I firmly believe the quality of decisions can be much richer and more cohesive of, of all the data points. If you understand these sorts of things, it's just because of human gobbledygook, it's not allowed to flourish. Yeah. It's much more well-informed too, in terms of your decision-making, like instead of spending two weeks on it. And we, we joke about this a lot. Like, uh, it, it would be great if I could say, Hey PJ, I want you to, can we build this modal with X, Y, Z component? And I could, I could maybe just go into the documentation pages and then point to you the component names. And then as a tech design technologist, you would say, let's, let's take a look at it. And sometime who knows how long this amount of time is, then they'll they'll come back to us and say yes, or maybe they'll say no because we don't have access to this endpoint. We can't really accomplish what you want to what you want to do. But this is what we can do, and I, I believe that that could be done over the course of two weeks instead of designers just designing and presenting and uh, getting design leadership excited about an impossible idea that cannot be created. It, that's and that is the that is the the risk of a, of a, of a, a, the idea of decks is that there can oftentimes be no there, there. Um, and then it goes, it goes back to what I said, like, but how, how are you going to do, how are you going to do this? Um, and that's where, that's where a lot of these things fall flat. Um, so if you're too focused on, you know, execution and all you're worried about is execution, like, but why the hell are you doing this? And it's, yeah, it's just the same problem. And that's the value of a design technologist is they're able to answer the why and the how. I mean, theoretically, they're able to do that uh, all in one fell swoop. Yeah, I see a lot of the the shortcomings of the staff presentation designers also working very much in, in, their, in their silo. And like, like you mentioned, design wants to be specific to design. We want our own design ideas to flourish. We don't want engineers to come poo-poo over our ideas and say like, you can't do this, you can't do this, but we do need to know where, where, where the gaps are. And I, I always like to say there's, there's lots of people that say, I want to get engineering involved early and often. Well, that means you're probably not getting them involved. Like, at a suitable time, you should be constantly engaging. And uh, this design technologist is a person that can help bridge, uh, or as Aisha would say, walk, walk together, right? Uh, you would eliminate the bridge cause you would be continuing to work hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Ideally there's no bridge to begin with. Um, and you bring in the, the staff designers and the staff engineers for the extremely specific specialized challenges, but man, like 80, 70% of the work we do does not require that. It's the basic, like mundane everyday stuff that just got to get done where you don't need a freaking rocket scientist or a, uh, 
or like some, you know, Paul Rand of product design noodling on it. You're like, we need to, we need to have a type treatment. We have a series of tokens. Just use one of those from the tokens. Just pick the right one, right? Like it's the, it's those mundane, boring things that, that is, you know, quote, too unimportant, too unimportant for the staff, but you know, the staff designer, the staff engineer, but it's the shit that makes everything run. And that's where design technologists thrive is because they're at that 80% threshold oftentimes for both areas. And they can get the boring, unsexy, quote, unimportant, but absolutely critical work to keeping the machine running. That's the kind of work that they can do. Um, and that's, that's what I'm always worried about is, you know, the existential problems are, you know, edge cases and, and it's less of an issue as opposed to like just the, the basics, the fundamentals. Yeah. This is a funny thing too. Cause like, I, I think one way that teams deviate from this model, I'll say meta or Facebook specifically is by, instead of having a design technologist, you have either designers that could prototype on their own, or you have someone that is more design capital D design technologist. And you want someone that has a split, a more of a split in both. So really understanding that you can get the desired outcome uh, based on what design wants, but you're going to be deviating from it by this percentage. And it might be better to use something that is a little more flexible or out of the box already. Yeah. Uh, 100%. And I would argue a lot of design technologists are pragmatists at their, at their core because they are, they're constrained by their own constraints. You're oftentimes making decisions that you can implement on your own. So you are, you are a pragmatist because you're oftentimes your own bottleneck. And so you just, you automatically thinking in constraints. Um, and I think that's another value is if constraints are the most important thing <laughs> in the world, in my opinion, uh, we look at them like they're a bad thing. And I think they're absolutely critical to making strong, uh, valuable, sustainable decisions. Um, and, but they're oftentimes like, you know, seen as you shouldn't, you should think outside the box. I mean, we have all these things about it, but, uh, a bit of a tangent, but I'd argue one of the best design executions ever was the Apollo 11 rescue mission. You had a bunch of NASA engineers that had to bring a bunch of people home from friggin' space and they had to design a, like, what was it? A carbon dioxide scrubber with the stuff that was already in the module, right? Like an amazing design challenge. And what you can't do is like, well, I want to think outside the box. Like you can't, you can't, you literally can't. And, and so that was an amazing human achievement to be able to do something like that. Um, do we have to be that extreme? No, but I do think that there is extreme value to be a little, uh, you know, pull it back a little bit and work with what you got and make something amazing with what you got. Uh, and that is to me, that's beautiful design. Yeah. I, I would always think about, like I said, uh, like what more from like the technical point of view, can I, can I learn more of? And one thing that I think that our system right now, our business design system does really well is our coded components are extremely tight. So I'd be able to go and read the documentation and say, this component accepts X, Y, Z. And 
then I would know that um, maybe this card component, for instance, doesn't accept an, an input field. And I would say like, if someone comes through um, our support channel, which, which they recently did and made something like this, I would say, Oh, it, it doesn't, uh, our, our component does not uh, accept that at the moment. You could consider using this other thing, which, which does uh, support it. So being able to understand how our com- components and our system works from that point of view as a designer, I think has been um, extremely valuable for me. Yeah. I, I, I think that's the, it goes back to you get designers who are only designers that climb the ladder as only being designers and get in a design org. And that's, and of course you're only going to be thinking about design (laughs) and the same thing with engineering, but we are not shipping code just for the sake of shipping code. And we're not shipping design just for the sake of shipping design. We're shipping a friggin' product that people are trying to use and they don't care that like, well, you know, designer just really thought like they just, they just thought this was really good. They didn't really care about what engineering thought. They just want the thing to work and they want to do what they want it to do for them as, as easily as possible. Yeah. I think from an engineering point of view, I've gotten feedback in the past that they, they do appreciate that we're going and doing our due diligence to see what is possible and what, where the constraint boundaries are before we ask for something new. So I think it helps as a quote, quote unquote, super senior or IC plus type designer to be able to think beyond what is our normal uh, design product design purview. So maybe this episode is called staff presentation designers versus design technologists. Maybe that's, that's what it seemed like it turned into. (laughs) (laughs) It went, it went in so many different places. Uh, yeah, I don't, good luck. Good luck titling this one, Davey. <laughs> Think outside. Love the box. Love the box. Constraints. Box is a good thing. Not the Figma type, but design and engineering constraints. <laughs> yeah. We've hit our over 30 minutes. Hopefully we've retained you for at least 30 of those. Thank you very much, PJ, for another spirited and pleasant discussion. Always. Thank you, man.